Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies Blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and the Garfield Firm. Servicing all 50 states and 24 countries with news and analysis about the largest economic crime in human history. This program is for general information only and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice or consultation with a licensed professional. This show is not intended as a solicitation for the engagement of any services. And now sitting in for Neil this week, it's your host, Charles Marshall. Uh, Good afternoon for those of you on the West Coast. Good evening for those of you on the East Coast. And some version of good morrow for those of you in the middle of the country. Here we are again on the Neil Garfield Show this June 25th, 2020. And a lot continues to go on, a lot of developing issues in the foreclosure arena, both judicial and non-judicial. We'll be discussing both arenas on the show today. And as always, happy to report I have Bill Padilla with me. Uh, Welcome, Bill. Always good to be with you, Charles. Thanks. Yes, thank you. And so one of the, the aspects of Lamu Chase that we haven't really delved into at a at a deep dive level, and we are going to kind of preliminarily go into wade into the waters, as it were, uh, and get into some of the intricacies of rules and regulations promulgated by the FDIC. Now, remember, the FDIC was appointed a receiver in what amounted to, uh, well, technically, it was somewhat styled as an involuntary bankruptcy, but in reality, it was a Chapter 11 bankruptcy that WAMU would have engaged back in 2008 under any scenario. But a receiver was appointed as is often the case when the bankrupting party is not entirely volunteering to uh, be in the bankruptcy. Sometimes a receiver is appointed regardless, but it's typically seen in bankruptcy styled in some fashion in an involuntary way. Bottom line, when WAMA went into bankruptcy and the FDIC came in for receivership purposes. The principal uh, receiving duties the FDIC had were to shepherd these securitized mortgages of WAMU and sort of legally sanitize them in a transfer through the bankruptcy process to Chase. Now, the fact that this this happened way back in 2008 and the fact that courts have largely, in in essence, ratified the result of the receivership, which at the time was 
the same if the loans were properly transferred to Long and Chase. Notwithstanding all that, despite all of that being on the record in some way in many courts and otherwise, there are a number of legal challenges that are that have happened over the year against these transfers. And Bill Padillon in particular has been able to expose uh, through the multiple legal cases that he's consulted on uh, exactly how and and where the uh, the transfers did not in fact legally happen. The angle that Bill will be talking about today involves what the FDIC uh, is calling themselves and is otherwise called a situation where the securitized mortgages of WAMU were legally isolated and therefore literally legally out of reach of the FDIC's receivership. So that's an important uh, analysis that Bill has brought to the table here. I think it creates a potential framework for challenging the WAMU Chase transfers from yet another perspective and yet another angle. And I'm always happy to have Bill come on the show to discuss yet another way to break down this great seemingly impenetrable but truly penetrable um, wall that the Wamu Chase edifice has created over the years. In fact, it is a breakable wall, and sometimes we're able to get some bricks out of there. Uh, And as always, uh, this show is brought to you by GTC Honors, and Neil very much appreciates uh, donations on his blog, which can be made at livinglies.me. So on this WAMU Chase angle, Bill, if you would go ahead and address that now and give us your great analysis, as you so often do. Well, thank thank you very much. I mean, I I think when you uh, have your nose buried in this particular fact pattern for a decade, uh, uh, it's it's amazing how things start to get more clear and they look different uh, every time you look at things, how that picture uh, has come together, that puzzle picture, so to speak. But the the picture now is, is clearer, more clear now than it has ever been uh, to show exactly what happened here and the fact that uh, uh, there has been no authority here in this purchase and assumption agreement. None of these loans that were securitized and sold prior to the receivership um, uh, were ever within the reach of the FDIC, uh, stepping in as successor in interest to Washington Mutual Bank. Uh, they had none of, no rights whatsoever to transfer, and here's why. Uh, at the beginning of the decade of 2000, leading up uh, into the big boom of the securitization um, uh, phenomenon that led to the economy crash, investors who were putting up money to uh, invest in these securities and these trusts had a huge concern that what happens if the parties who we're doing these transactions with happen to file bankruptcy 
uh, or they are taken over, a federal institution is taken over by the FDIC uh, in a receivership situation. Um, where, you know, the concern was what happens to these assets? Could the FDIC take control and, and uh, basically take away our rights or any claims that we have to these assets? You know, they wanted assurances essentially that the assets were bankruptcy remote as they were intended to be through the securitization process, through the sales to these uh, special purpose entities who are bankruptcy remote and that these assets, uh, the way it was supposed to be done, transferred into these securitized trusts and therefore uh, isolated and out of the reach of the receivers. So the FDIC, uh, and well, I'll take a step back here, um, when you start to pour through the, the bowels of the prospectus uh, supplements, uh, especially for Washington Mutual Bank, the place in their risk factor sections, they tell the investors a whole number of things. And we've talked about it in the past on the show about how they disclosed, um, and this is a big part of it, that they weren't going to endorse the notes and they weren't going to execute assignments. They basically admitted to the investors and the investors consented that the chain of title uh, and their, their interest in any of these assets, supposedly the loans, the mortgage loans, uh, was never going to be perfected, and they weren't going to document any of that. So that's a key component. But also in these risk factors, they tell the investors that the FDIC had, it has issued a regulation surrendering certain rights to reclaim, recover, or recharacterize a financial institution's transfer of the assets, such, such as the mortgage loans. And they, they spell out essentially that, if these loans are securitized and as they were to be done uh, through the transactions to these parties and put in the trust, that um, the regulation by the FDIC is that the, the assets are going to be what's called uh, legally isolated. So when you look up that rule and regulation, and it's posted right on the FDIC's uh, uh, government website, and they came out and they issued it on August of 11 of uh, 2000, and they basically um, reassure the investors, and, and they're basically publishing that here's, here's how we're going to handle this. And I'm just going to read a couple paragraphs. So the first paragraph says, under generally accepted accounting principles, a transfer of financial assets is accounted for as a sale if the transfer surrenders control over the assets. One of the conditions for determining whether the transfer has surrendered control is that the assets have been isolated from the transfer, i.e., put presumptively beyond the reach of the transfer and its creditors, even in bankruptcy or receivership. This is known as the legal isolation condition. So they're basically saying, and this is the way it was to work, that these uh, loans were, again, uh, put into a bankruptcy remote situation and legally isolated. And then the FDIC says in another uh, paragraph, and it's, in, it's a pretty simple read, but I'm just trying to uh, be brief here. The final rule resolves these issues by clarifying the powers of the FDIC as conservator or receiver with respect to financial assets transferred by an insured depository institution in connection with a securitization or in the form of a participation. The FDIC believes that this clarification should provide sufficient assurance to determine that the legal isolation condition is met. So, 
now we know that the FDIC is saying, don't worry, investors, these, uh, these assets are out of our reach and they're legally isolated. And therefore, uh, when we now know what WAMU's business model was, that they were uh, originating to, to sell and securitize all of their loans, that they were off balance sheet and they were out of the FDIC's receivership, now you have the situation where WAMU fails and they're essentially caught with their pants down because they have a million loans, you know, roughly, that all are undocumented uh, in terms of the notes being endorsed, the deeds of trusts or mortgages, no assignments have been prepared, and these assets which were sold are now out of the reach of the receiver. So uh, what what's going to happen now because essentially what you have is a you know i'm just using rounded numbers you have a million wamu loans mortgages and deeds that are fatally defective and clouded and by their own doing uh and and the reality is again the investors knew about this and they consented to this so no there should be no sympathy given to these uh uh, more on investors who are putting billions of dollars up with these uh, parties who uh, you know are all going to you know be foolish enough not to not to uh, perfect any of their interests so you have these clouded titles and now you've got the FDIC stepping in and all they do is they can succeed to the uh, there's a successor in interest essentially to Wamu Bank but if Wamu Bank doesn't own it of course logically the FDIC also has acquired nothing. So now this is where, you know, everybody can really see what's what's going on, uh, that Chase sees an opportunity to uh, step into that void and to unjustly uh, engorge itself and enrich itself by uh, trumping up this authority in conjunction with the FDIC to handle all of these loans as though they have some sort of right, okay? Now, here's what, where it gets, you know, even more clear. There were six power of attorney documents over, you know, since September 25th of 08 until the present time that were issued to J.P. Morgan Chase from the FDIC, uh, spelling out what authorities they, they got by virtue of the purchase and assumption agreement. And in those six LPOAs, uh, the very, well, they kind of go in sequential order for dates. There is a specific uh, power of attorney that was crafted for quote unquote sold loans and REO loans uh, that WAMU had sold prior to the receivership. And in that power of attorney document, it's very specific. Um, it says in there that, and clearly the FDIC was aware that uh, WAMU didn't document anything on these sold loans. And somehow the FDIC tries to grant authority to Chase to basically go out there and create, you know, and recreate and fabricate the chain of title to these loans. And in doing so, they, one, tell Chase, or at least give this uh, false authority, in my opinion, to go out and endorse WAMU notes with WAMU officer endorsements on these notes. Now, that, to me, is 
uh, pretty egregious, and I'm sure there's a lot of people that can make the argument that that's, you know, what a license to commit forgery, you know, whatever you want to say, but... But there's clearly no authority. If the assets are out of the FDIC's reach, they don't have authority to grant anything, let alone uh, Chase having some false rights to go out there and meddle with these chains of title or issue endorsements on the notes, create assignments to itself first um, as beneficiary, like they got some sort of beneficial interest from the FDIC, which clearly they did not get. But what's really interesting in this power of attorney document, and this is critical because when when Chase is called on this, uh, they tend to get back on their heels and they'll say, okay, well, whatever. If we didn't even get the loan, uh, you know, even if we concede to that point, uh, we purchased the servicing rights to the loan. Well, <laughs> they didn't even get the servicing rights. There's no documentation of that either because the power of attorney states that for the loans that were sold prior to the receivership, they were required to get consent to uh, proceed as servicer on these loans that were securitized. And typically that consent was to come from the trustees of the securitized transactions. So when you delve into the uh, trust agreements and they talk about a situation of default by the servicers, what happens is if the servicer goes bankrupt or goes into receivership or whatever, the trustee then temporarily steps into the shoes of the servicer and then grants permission uh, or, or whatever it is from the trustee to whoever is going to service. So it's not a situation where uh, again, there's a connection with Chase to these loans via the purchase and assumption agreement. Not only there's no connection to ownership, but there's no connection to purchasing anything even regarding servicing rights. So, so that is also um, a very critical point. Now, over the years, and I'm sure there's many listeners out there and people who uh, uh, tune into this show at some later point in time, you, if you're following this story, you've probably seen or you've been affected by some sort of title document, a deed of trust or a, an assignment or substitution trustee, whatever. And there were certain terms that were being used uh, very frequently in almost all cases for a number of years, and they, they still are out there floating around. Those names that Chase was using to execute these documents, one of which is you'll see a, a, a term successor and in interest by purchase. And that one's always been a goofy one to me because I've never been able to understand what in the world is a successor in interest by purchase. Either you're the successor in interest by operation of law or whatever, but it's just a quirky term. The other one is acquirer of certain assets. Uh, that's an, uh, another one that they use. Or uh, in the early days, it was just flat out successor in interest. Now, when you go through the power of attorney documents, no authority was ever even granted by uh, the FDIC to Chase to ever use those particular terms in, in executing the document. So, so if you have those in title, you know right now or right away that, wait, uh, those don't even comply with any of the uh, six power of attorney documents that were issued in that receivership. So it's... It's really clear now, uh, and where we've been um, fighting this thing for so long is we've been arguing, you know, that there's no schedule of loans, they don't exist, and all of that. Well, we know that. Um, 
and that uh, we've been seeking the internal MSP system screenshots to get the dates that the notes were endorsed and all of that to prove that Chase has been doing it. And a lot of this is, you know, like chasing down Cynthia Riley, for example, and her employment history and everything to try to prove these are forgeries. A lot of this has sort of become a, a bit of a red herring now because we know they didn't endorse the notes, and we know they, they didn't do that. They admitted that they weren't going to do that. And then we have these false authorities in the power of attorney telling Chase that FDIC is saying, go ahead and endorse the notes. So, so the reason why they play hardball and don't give you these documents and discovery and everything else is, well, the First, they don't want to give you the, 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 the proof they did it, but we don't even really need that anymore because it says right on the documents that this is what they were doing and how they were going about doing it. So bottom line is the only connection as a title examiner, when I'm looking at these things and, and, and uh, going over the chain of title, the only connection Chase has to any of these loans to foreclose or claim anything, the only connection they have is that purchase and assumption agreement with the FDIC. And now, uh, with this information, it clearly debunks that these, that these assets were isolated. And what I'm excited about is, for example, your case, Charles, uh, the Masood case, where now, not only in the Masood case, but other cases that I'm involved in, in other jurisdictions, the judges are now finally saying, wait a minute, uh, you need to specifically show, Chase, how you purchased this particular loan uh, for in this receivership or how you purchased it because the purchase and assumption agreement doesn't identify anything. It's pretty much uh, uh, a worthless piece of paper in terms of connecting uh, your ability to uh, have gotten any authority through that. So you need to prove it. And I think we're getting real close now um, and especially, uh, I'm, I'm real excited about your Masood case of how this is all, all going to apply. Um, and then one more thing I want to touch upon um, before you talk a little bit about the COVID stuff is for years, uh, when anybody would reach out to the FDIC seeking information regarding their specific loan, um, and, and even sending Freedom of Information Act requests, you know, anything in litigation trying to uh, get the FDIC to produce documents regarding the, uh, how they acquired any, any party's specific loan. The parent response from, from the FDIC, and especially the low-level uh, customer service people at the FDIC, has routinely been for years and years and years, well, we didn't get anything, we don't have any documents, uh, go talk to Chase. So it's essentially saying, you know, go talk to the, Ch uh, to the fox who's guarding the hen house, right? Um, but now information has come to light that I think is uh, uh, very interesting, is that we, uh, I'm aware now through litigation, I'm not going to be real specific to the cases, but we are now aware that there is a schedule or at least a database or multiple databases within the receivership's custody and control that now uh, identifies the inventory of what was in there and what was not in there. And that information can be sought now on subpoena 
And uh, the responses I'm anticipating are going to be, or at least should be, consistent when they come back. But what we now know is that they, they have what's called a litigation information technology unit at the FDIC where they can individually, they don't, they don't have to defer the chase or anything, that they can go in and they can check those records to determine if someone's loan was a part of that receivership and whether it actually there's evidence of anything sell, where they acquired it and sold it to Chase or the servicing rights. That's huge, and that's a whole kind of different story that we're now seeing. And lo and behold, uh, the response is uh, we searched our databases and we don't have any records in the receivership of this particular loan having come through our fingers. So if that's the responses now coming directly from the FDIC, I think that's going to multiply out across pretty much everybody's loan. And if you get that kind of a response back from the FDIC, if you're in litigation anyway, challenging Chase's authority on this stuff, I think you've just uh, pretty much severed that umbilical cord uh, <laughs> because Chase is not going to have anything to go back on and rely on if, if that PAA is uh, uh, cut out from underneath them. That's the only thing they have to connect. Charles? I think you've given really uh, even a little bit of a blueprint, one might say, uh, and as I always say technically on this show, I'm not giving legal advice and I will make a disclaimer that what I'm about to say is not a legal recommendation per se. I will say, though, uh, nevertheless, that you've given a blueprint for attorneys to use to use the, the angle around the FDIC's receivership over the WAMU securitized mortgages, and including the detailed points that that you related there. And I will also uh, remind listeners that, you know, you did blog about this as well. So there's a lot of good details uh, to be explored and developed. And one as to this whole matter that I really like is it's a way to get behind the contrived complexity that was and, and has been built up by the institutional players controlling these uh, mortgages. And what you're describing is itself complex, and it does involve a lot of moving parts. That's unfortunately, I think, what's often needed to break down the contrivance and to get behind it, get in the middle of it, so that you can undermine it. And that's where I see this being used as a tool to to advance borrowers' interest. Now, on the uh, COVID-19 front, and this is also something I have said on this this show a number of times regarding COVID matters, uh, there's a need for listeners to just continually update uh, where things are at and their specific county and their specific region and their specific state. There are multiple sources in every state providing COVID information. And so there are going to be some variety of uh, rule distinctions from state to state, whether it involves foreclosure issues or anything else. 
It is quite common, however, for the states, and I don't know of an exception to this, where the COVID-19 regulations are in place, which is not every state literally, but the vast majority of states, where they have done some kind of a lockdown and restricting all kinds of business and public behavior, it is literally coming out of the governor's office typically. And there has been very little legislation per se, actual actual men and women in state legislative weighing in on these issues. The, the issues are normally coming out of coming out of the governor's office wherever you are in the state of California, that's Sacramento. Uh, and to get the latest updates on litigation in California, the COVID impact, one of the best sources is going online to each county website, the court websites, and then the federal courts, all four branches in California, all four locations, eastern, northern, central, southern, they will all have COVID updates anytime you go to their website. Thank you, Bill, for being with me, and Neil will be back next week. Thanks, Charles. The opinions expressed on The Neil Garfield Show are those of its hosts and should not be ascribed to any other persons or entities. For more information about Neil, the blog, or upcoming seminars, please visit livinglies.me. Give us a call at 954-451-1230 or send an email to N-E-I-L-F-G-A-R-F-I-E-L-D at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Neil Garfield Show. If the information has helped you, consider making a donation by visiting livinglies.me.